You are listening to Nerd Best Friends, a podcast that covers the nerdy conversations you're already having, or wish you could. It's the nerdiest thing you'll do this week. Welcome back to Nerd Best Friends. I'm Annalise, and I'm here with my best friend, Rob. Hey, it's me, Rob, your best friend, your podcast host, and your guy who plays video games just for the cutscenes. The Nerd Best Friends podcast can be found wherever you get your podcast content. Subscribe and follow us today. If you'd like to support our podcast, find us on Venmo or click on the tip jar button on our website, nerdbestfriends.com. This is season two, episode 33, and this is the first installment of our newest series, Nerd Careers. We have a special guest on today's episode who is an amazing and accomplished CGI artist in the film industry. But first, Rob's recommendations. Oh man, Annalise, you know because I was bombarding you with pictures, but I recently received a Kickstarter delivery from something that I backed about a year ago from the company Dungeons and Lasers. And they specialize in plastic molded miniatures. The thing that drew me to them was terrain. They have these like terrain sets of, you know, arches and fallen statues, or this is a, everything you need to set up a swamp. This is everything you need to set up a cool forest. This is everything you need to set up a blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah. And then they have a bunch of other things that they do as well, especially like miniatures and monsters, villagers, a lot of iconic things that you need and scatter terrain. Boxes, crates, beds, chairs, barrels, all this kind of stuff. So I backed this Kickstarter because I really wanted the one. It was called Land of the Giants or Fallen Giants or something like that. And it had a bunch of toppled statues and ruins mm. of columns and arches. And they will be a perfect addition to my Mythic Battles Pantheon boards to give them some 3D scatter terrain. Yeah. It's not, it's not, it's not for D and D. I was, I just assumed it was D and D. You actually, I mean, it you can help. use it for anything. Wow. Okay. But specifically, okay on those wow. boards there's a lot of like fallen statues and fallen arches and columns and stuff to give it that you know that ancient greek type feel yeah yeah but that's just static painted on the boards so i'm like oh if i could overlay things on the top of that it's gonna you know i'm always trying to turn my games up to 11 sure um so that was specifically why i saw it like i saw it and wow. i was like oh that's what i want so i was like i need that one box with the Kickstarter, you get two boxes. So I was like, okay, well, I'll get that one box. I talked to our other friend, listener, and sometimes guest Juliana, who also plays Mythic Battles Pantheon. I was like, you right. want me to get you one of these? She's like, oh, no, I don't want them. Okay. So I decided to get the Swamp set for my second box because I don't have any. It has like all these little rickety like piers and bridges and like oh, sure. big hanging trees that were just different from anything I had. So I was like, okay, those are going to be the two that I get. You know, there was some add-ons from like their first Kickstarter. It was like, oh, you could add on this cool set from the Kickstarter that I never heard of. I was like, oh, okay, cool. I'll do that. It's not too much, too expensive. And then you get all of the add-ons that they did. Or the goals, right? The stretch goals? Yeah, stretch goals. Stretch goals. Yeah, yeah, okay. Thank you. Annalise, I've never received a Kickstarter that had more stretch goals than this company. I bought three boxes of stuff. I received 15 boxes of yeah. stuff. It, <laughs> it listeners so much. <laughs> it's absurd. Like not only just pictures, but we we also past guest and Rob's son Andrew was in a musical 
in our town. And mm-hmm. one night we went to go see it and afterwards went over to Rob's house. And I'd forgotten about all the pictures Rob sent me. And I went into the little game room to get myself a beverage from the refrigerator. And I saw the open box with like 15 boxes and went, since when is there a Kickstarter that gives you more stuff than the Kickstarter was? It's absurd was how much stuff you got. Yeah, there were more freebies than there were things that I actually purchased. So as far as like value and starting a collection, oh my gosh, this thing. So because they just delivered this one, they've already started their third one. So their third one is live right now. It should still be live by the time this podcast comes out. I think it's on GameFound, Dungeons and Lasers. Check it out. Look at it. I feel like if you're looking to start a collection of terrain or you want to just have a bunch of minis in your collection ready to go for when you need them, like you're going to get a ton of stuff. It sounds like when you did the second one that you just got delivered, you were able to pick sets even from the first Kickstarter. So you have kind of an open... Yeah, Yeah, that's the same for this third one, I noticed. Like, oh, if you missed our second one or if you missed our first one, you can just add on all these other ones. Those were the add-ons that I had purchased. I was like, okay, I'll back the second one. And then, oh, this first one had this cool thing. I'll I'll add on that. And then it just blew open. And you now have, I don't know, 300 pieces more to paint uh you know it's one of those things i went through and i'm picking out a lot of the scatter terrain just to have on hand just to have that bucket of like oh i've got plenty of tables chairs bookshelves crates and barrels all that stuff just to have so when you're setting something up it's like okay here's a room but really quickly i can just reach into a giant box of plastic pull out some things scatter some terrain around and just make it look a little a little cooler you know just that extra notch up to 11 it's like oh okay you know here's this empty room that's you know four squares by six squares it's a library use your imagination oh no i got like 10 different i got bookshelves i can line the thing put tables in the middle and i can do the whole thing yeah so it's it'll be fun but yeah what a i yeah i I was shocked (laughs) how much stuff came so that sounds appealing to you check that out that's a recommendation all right how about some nerd mail nerd mail yeah, you were, you wouldn't even tell me about the nerd mail because you wanted my reaction. So here we go. What do you got? So our episode, I've seen this before, part two with Andrew, where we compared Ready Player One with the Muppets. We have quite some feedback <laughs> and nerd mail from this. I'm going to start it- with. Positive feedback or is it, um, actually feedback? It's neither. Actually, it's just nerd rage. Oh, so boy. in this Hit case, me. we have some fans of the book Ready Player One who reached out and not well, actually, but basically like you're really missing out. So first from Los 805 SB, he says, Ready Player One does not end like this in the book. Mm-hmm. I loved the book and liked the movie, but was disappointed in some things in the movie. So I asked him, how does the book end if it's different than the movie? So spoilers ahead if you've not read the book or seen the movie. But in the book, Wade meets the girl in real life. Once he meets her and they fall in love or whatever, he doesn't have the urge to log into the Oasis anymore. He just abandons the Oasis once it's whatever. Oh, so the equivalent of like, oh, we close the Oasis two days a week is basically this guy being like, I don't need a virtual world anymore. That's a better, I mean, I don't know better because I don't know if it's realistic, but it it, it brings home the lesson a little bit yeah. more, right? If we're looking at a character going through an arc and the pretend world being so important to him at the end, he abandons his childish things to live a life of reality. 
Yeah. yeah. He still becomes the like owner, I guess him and the high five or whatever become mm-hmm. the owners of the Oasis, but now he just owns it and doesn't live in it like he was. Oh, cool. Like all great life, creative right? things. The person who doesn't have anything to do with the actual play is in charge <laughs> of everything. Awesome. Thanks. Well, that's kind of the theme for the creator of the Oasis, right? He didn't create that thing to live in it. He created it to create an experience based off of what he loved about gaming. I mean, that's kind of where I'm seeing the connection there, right? The guy who created it didn't, before he dies, I think, doesn't live in the Oasis. He's just constantly trying to make it better for people. No, he made it. He, like, transferred his consciousness in there, remember? And he lives up in his attic oh, with that's his little right. boy self. That's right. You're right. You're right. As part of the, But that's part of the puzzle. That was part of the... Like, when he solves it at the yeah. end and he finally yeah, is, yeah, yeah. I know, he you're, made it because he, yeah he wanted yeah. that he didn't like the real world and he escaped mm. forever into the oasis the second listener says everything you all are frustrated with the movie are not in the book the only thing that is the same is the level of explanation by the author yeah. i appreciated it because i had never been a gamer and then ignored the extra stuff for the pop references and the music I'm listening to Andrew go on and on about the two AAPI characters, and there are they are so much bigger in the book, and so is H. So that's also that's also good to know about the book. Also, that the Shining stuff's not in the book, and I actually said that's mm-hmm. a detriment because that was one of my favorite parts of the movie. <laughs> but the movies in the book are more abstract, so I think they wanted the movie that was more mainstream for audience members and not the exact storyline. Also, the Iron Giant's not in the book. so we got some we got some good good comments from from some nerds out there about that episode in particular that that book that i being told you should read it anyways here's an interesting take on that email is because they said well yeah it explains everything but i just kind of skipped over the parts that I already knew. That I already knew. So yeah. when I read the book, I actually, it was an audio book, right? That I would listen to while I was walking around and doing stuff. And I can't get away from the explanation, like all the mm. over explanation of explaining the joke when it's an audio book. And it just seems to kind of go on and on and on. Right. So that's a different experience where they're like, oh yeah, I know this. He's talking about this. And you could just kind of move your eyes and scan yeah. faster with the audio book. It's just this constant, it just you goes. know, like in pizza parlors in the eighties, there would be, uh, mm. the games yeah. that you could sit down at and play. These were called cocktail. And it's like, come <laughs> on. <laughs> I can see that there's a difference between those two. Like if you try to fast forward through an audiobook, you're gonna find yourself spending more time going backwards and forwards to right, figure out where yeah. you were. Yeah. Well, the other thing is we got a nerd correction about it. I kept talking about and we argued a bit about because I brought up the Hunger Games and you and Andrew were referencing that first Hunger Game movie. I was not specific in saying I was talking about the Mocking Jay, which is the very, very end of the series was what I was comparing to in my head, which I think is why it didn't jive to you and Andrew. And someone said, the the word you're forgetting, she's not the girl on fire at the end of the series, she's the Mockingjay, which is that thing she had to decide about whether or not to be the face of the rebellion, blah, 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 blah. So I got nerd corrected on that because I didn't mention the right, right term. <laughs> There's that as well. But yeah, nerds, keep it coming. Like that was that was awesome to get all that communication since that episode. Oh my gosh, you're not going to make me do Hunger Games versus Twilight, are you? Oh no, I texted you the idea for next seasons. In our first installment of Nerd Careers, we bring to the show Zach Weiler, a CGI artist who's worked on many films, including Academy Award winners. Welcome to the show, Zach. We're so excited that you're here. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Glad to be with you guys. We always start our guests 
by having them tell us a little bit of their nerd cred, things you are nerdy about, hobbies, interests, etc. Oh, I mean that that's a long list. It's movies, animation, anime, tea. I can go down a huge list of things I'm nerdy about, especially I, I love tea. So I'm huge into like, my knowledge of tea is very nerdy. The tea nerds are a thing, Annalise. Are you aware of this community? I, it's sort of. And when I say by that is I think Zach is my first experience <laughs> in this because I've been to his house. And uh-huh. there is a section where there's a big note for their housekeeper. I hope it's okay that I say this. All yeah, right. go for it. That says, do not clean the tea shelf. And I got a very lovely explanation about the chemicals and how they get infused into the different teas, even though they're in their containers and et cetera. And tea at Zach's house is excellent. I have actually like unglazed pots that I use for specific teas that are from China. Yeah, you don't clean those or anything. You just, you go. And then when you're done, you pour the tea over it in like the uh, gung fu style to let it kind of seep in. And the tannins will actually effuse with the iron that's in the clay and make it like, give it a sheen after a while. I know, as I said, I'm very nerdy about that. How's that for your nerd cred, Annalise? <laughs> I think it's great. I've I've been to China and have also seen this. We got treated to some very like high level guests of Yanshan University and Qingguangdao, China, where it's not open to the public. And they showed us, I mean, obviously it was being translated, so I didn't catch everything, but tea that blossomed into flowers, what was sitting in the pots and like, yeah, it's a thing. And good for you because man, I know it can be like one second too long in the water or one ingredient too long being steep it's pretty uh pretty oh yeah oh, the water temperature is really crazy the type of tea it is i mean everything adds to everything really good tea especially green and white tea you can just put in normal water and let it sit there for like 10 minutes not even have any heat i mean i can make a whole show about that <laughs> <laughs> i mean I, we... I have questions <laughs> yeah go, so, you want, go ahead so with the science there do you utilize digital tools for temperature and timing and things or is it like all natural natural, old school, only, you know, authentic. So my everyday tea, just because of I have to wake up at 4am with my little guy is very caffeinated and black. So I have water heaters that have it set to a specific temperature. So I can just use that. So there's no science involved, except for just hitting a button and pouring it in there. But when it comes to like the temperature of a green tea or a white tea, I don't use a thermometer, you stick your finger in there. And when it feels warm enough, you put everything in and go. So an artisan approach. It, it kind of is, it, but that takes a very long time because there's many different ways and you can burn it or make it bitter really fast. And I think I know one of the things that Annalise appreciates when I drag her to different craft breweries is that everybody tries to come up with like silly names for their <laughs> beers. Am I right that kind of in the American tea market, that is also a thing where the teas will have like punny names? Oh yeah. And then they try to mix stuff in and make it flavored and i try very hard to stay away from most anything that is manufactured in america just because they try to add too much flavoring to it because they don't understand tea enough to realize or it's the fact that they're going to a market that doesn't understand water temperature so they gotta go towards a broad market of they're gonna ruin it so why not have a flavor that covers how they ruined it interesting okay it's it's for that that lowbrow sweet tea crowd well, it's the same way for wine, too. Like, they've made it so that, you know, you can get a bottle of wine from the store, open it, and drink it instead of having to buy it and wait for 10 years because they know no one's going to wait for it for most people. So, 
Any more things you want to talk about, T, Annalise? (laughs) No, I think we're good. We brought, I mean, this is all educational and phenomenal and makes me almost want to like tea. And maybe my problem is, well, I'll tell you what, the tea in China was phenomenal. And I kept telling everybody I was with, if tea in, in the U.S. tasted like this, I would have no problem drinking tea. Here, it just tastes like wet plant. And yeah. I can't, I can't get around that. So maybe I need to get a little more into this world. But Zach, we brought you on the show to talk about <laughs> your career. <laughs> I want to start off. I just want to read some, and I'm not going to read every film on your list, but this is a pretty impressive list on IMDb. I'll start with the most recent because that's how IMDb works. But we have Love, Death and Robots, The Atom Project, Aquaman, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Tomb Raider, Black Panther, Justice League, King Arthur, The Promise, Ben-Hur, Batman vs. Superman, Wreck-It Ralph, The Smurfs, Alice in Wonderland, Curious Case of, of Benjamin Button, yeah, The Mummy, Beowulf, Frozen, Chronicles of Narnia. I skipped some here and there, but wow, what a list of films that you have worked on. We're just really like in awe of this. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in being a CGI artist? Maybe first, yeah, what what part of these movies are you involved in and what is your role? So I do cloth and hair, which has kind of evolved from when I first started it. It was just considered cloth and hair. And now it's called creature effects or CFX. But then again, every studio has a different name for it. Some will call it like technical direction or technical animation because you also do cleanup of the bodies before you do the cloth on there. But I, I still go by the old name of just cloth and hair. And how how does that come about? I mean, this is a little bit into the, the that initial question about your background and whatnot, but you don't obviously grow up going, I want to do cloth and hair. <laughs> to me, I'm thinking about being a doctor, right? You you go to yeah. med school and then at some point you have a specialty. Is it is it similar to that? Well, for me, it was kind of like I kept failing at other stuff or I, it kind of got shifted. I wanted to be an illustrator and I went to college for being an illustrator. One of my first classes through illustration, the teacher was also an illustrator besides being a teacher. And she had worked five years on this book and she didn't know that someone else was also doing it. In fact, they had five other people doing all the illustrations for this children's book. And so she staked everything she had on it. And after five years, they chose someone else. And so she came in crying, like, you're all going to end up on the streets. You'll all be working at McDonald's. Oh, boy. What they try to do at our schools is for the first year is just try to show you how bad you are and how much you need them. And then build you up and build Mm -hmm. you from the ground up. And so I was at that stage of like, I really suck. And here she comes in and being like, yeah, you guys really suck. (laughs) (laughs) And so... I'd always had an interest of CG. So I just kind of went, you know, maybe I'll just take, give that a go. And I switched colleges. I went down to Savannah, Georgia, just because it was warm. No idea about the school or anything. Yeah. I ended up doing that. And I wanted to be a animator at first. And then through my schooling, I realized I was doing more modeling than anything. I never Mm -hmm. got past the modeling phase because I love just building and sculpting and doing the hands-on work. So when I graduated, my first job was doing modeling but it was in a different program. So when I first started, they gave me all this stuff to do. It was a different program. It took me a couple of minutes to figure it out, but they made the entire schedule three months for this work that I had because of the first thing I had done when I was learning. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I get it. Instantly got it. And I did three months worth of work in a week. Wow. And they kind of just were like, you know, we don't want to lose you, but we have nothing else for you to do. Mm. So we're just going to throw you into cloth and hair. Okay. Okay. Completely against it. I'm like, no, I I know I like doing this. I have no idea what I'm doing. And they're like, it's either that or we fire you. So they put me in cloth and hair, trained me for a month. And then my boss decided that he was going to go to a different job and he was going to make me the boss. 
Nice. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So after one month of training, not know what I was doing, he left and I started taking up the reins of being the boss and we brought in 20 interns to help me. And then once you start in this industry, especially if it's a niche thing, it's really funny how you can't get away from it. You're just so, a go-to person. Yeah. And I loved thing. it right from yeah. that beginning thing. And I was just like, okay. And then you just kind of snowballed. No one was doing it. So you just kind of keep going and going. And then you become the guy, right? You're, if I'm understanding this correct, you are like a contracted artist. You don't like necessarily belong to one studio unless they want you exclusively. Yeah. And I don't know if that's a thing for CGI artists, but you are just contracted film to film to film. Yeah. You know, there's two specializations. So I'm kind of at the point now where I make a little bit too much and have a really long history. So they like to bring me in for projects, you know, especially when it's at the point of we need to get as much done as possible. Go, 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 go. And then at the end, they kind of let you go because you're a little bit too much to have you come into and do the grunt work and the setup and all the stuff. Mm-hmm. That takes a long time to do. So yeah, so now I am at this point where it's harder to get into a longer career. But there's a lot of people that they are in the industry have been at a studio for decades. Wow. How much of that is kind of a company feel with those interns you bring in or people that like you see familiar faces and work together with people and how much of it is just you on your own at your own office by yourself doing work? That's a good question. So, I mean, I know a lot of people, we all kind of, the industry is so small that you kind of know everyone in there or they're friends of someone that you're friends with. But once you get in, as soon as you start learning everything, there might be tips and tricks that you kind of share with people, but it's kind of like, here's your stuff, put your head down and do it. So it seems like a lot of people, when I watched the end credits of a movie and all the names are going by, if I watched closely, would we see a lot of the same names in that CG, in that uh, list of Yeah, but it would, it would be really difficult to memorize all of them. Sure. But yes, you would definitely see a lot of the same names, especially if you go for like a Disney. The Disney has a lot of the same people constantly that are there. So, yeah. Got it. I hear that's the same for their musicians as well. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's very much. So. Yeah. Yeah. Once you're in, do, you're in. <laughs> do you have people you keep kind of on speed dial when you get a project or when you are brought on, you have a team already situated to then continue working? I'm not high enough to bring people on myself. They usually bring uh-huh. me on to, to do things. But I know there's those people have me on, on the dial when they need me to come in. The two biggest ones right now is uh, Blur, who did Love, Death, and Robots, and Scanline, which did like the Adam Project, Aquaman, Meg, you know, Batman versus Superman. So you listed some movies there, and we know that you've worked on a few movies that have won uh, different awards, Academy Awards. Is there something that uh, one of the films that you'd like to highlight that, you know, everybody would know and maybe any of the like challenges or fun experiences that you'd like to share on those projects? Well, Batman versus Superman was a very interesting one that I was brought on to. It was the first time at Scanline. They did a little bit of cloth and hair before I got there, but their tools were very, very meager and they really weren't known for that. In the industry, they're really known for their water effects. Almost every movie that they've ever done is water-based. And they're really good. They have a whole setup for that. It's a gorgeous program. But they weren't known for cloth and hair. When I went in there, it was just me at first. I came in and they just threw me under the bus. Like, go, 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 go. No training, no nothing. So it was all on the job, on the shots, training with no tools. So you had to figure out how to get 
especially for something as complex as Batman's cape, because it seems easy, but it's very stylized. In my work, most of the time, cloth and hair, you want it to move, you want it to look good, and you want it not to be noticed. You notice it, you did something wrong. But for Batman, you want to notice it. You want to see the cape move. You want to know, oh, that is him. Same with Superman. You want to, they have to have the life of their own, but also feel like cloth and feel like it could be somewhat realistic. So it was a very interesting time and it took everything I had just to figure out how to get the shapes that they wanted in the time that they wanted. And it was do as much as possible. So when I started there, they only had a few shots that they were doing. The director, Zack Snyder, loved our work that we were giving him so much that he stopped giving us more and more. And eventually we did pretty much the whole scene. Hopefully I'm not spoiling it for anyone, but we did the whole (laughs) scene of Batman going to save Martha. Uh-huh. So the whole warehouse fights and everything wow. that was all of us. And wow. I did the lion's share of the work for that. I'd say 90% of the capes came from me. And then because of the work we did on that, Zack Snyder asked for me specifically to be on Justice League. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. And from what I gather, because I wasn't in the room, but from what I gather, we would not have gotten Justice League if they couldn't have gotten me to do the capes for Batman. Right. Very nice. Good well, and it's such a good way that you just described it. Something that I think just the casual movie watcher like like me would never have considered before. But there is absolutely a different way you anticipate Batman's cape movement to Superman's. Just the type of material you make assumptions that they are. How the two different characters move through space differently and how that affects what they're wearing. Like, it just blew my mind. And I'm thinking about scenes as you're describing this going, yeah, I never thought about it in that way. But if, especially, you know, Batman moves a lot through dark and, and night. So I imagine it's not just cape, but it's shadows of cape that's generating that movement Oh, so yeah. that we know it's Batman, right? Oh, yeah. Well, that's one of the things that we're hammered on all the time is the silhouette. Silhouette is always a major thing. You don't yeah. want crinkling at the silhouette. You want nice lines, but you also want to make it look like it's cloth. For Batman, you want the silhouette of, if he's not moving, it has to drape down. But you still have to see, like, the fingers of his cape. You always want to see it, and you always want to see it at those angles. When we're working on I kind of got into this whole thought process that seemed to work with every time he moves... Even though his cape is a very heavy leather and it's not supposed to be very flowy, you still wanted the cape to be hanging down like this, but to flare and then go down. So even if he does a little quick motion, you want it to come up and then go down fast. Yeah. And you always want the fingers to be outstretched and look discernible. So they can't be Mm -hmm. bent. They can't be anything like that. So that was a very tricky and very stylized thing that you had to do, but you had to do it quick. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's something, you know, as we look and we'll have more questions about this, but when I think of early CGI for things like that, and then modern, you're right, Batman's cape is heavy and you can tell it's heavy, even though it may not exist in the real world where 10, 15 years ago, everything kind of looked the same. You know, it was just kind of looked weightless on on the screen. And there's been a lot of evolution there, especially what a great comparison with, with Batman and Superman's capes. Well, for Batman... They actually had a stage cape that he would wear, and it was uh, a rubber cape. And it was super mm. thick, and it weighed about 75 pounds to get it to move and look like heavy leather. Just for some reason, they had to do that. And I, it hurt Ben Affleck's back to, to oh, wear wow. it all the time. No kidding. So he was also part of the reason why we got more work, because he saw what we did, thought, oh, my God, I don't have to wear this ever now. And so for <laughs> Justice true. League, he really didn't wear the cape. Even for standing still shots, even for easy shots, we put it on there. So we and it's all added on. Oh, yeah. Okay. Speaking of that and that 
evolution. How has the industry changed since you first started working on it? And what are some of the new exciting developments that you're noticing? So when I first got in there, there were no tools or no people doing it either. So everything was very much an afterthought, especially for what we were doing. This pipeline had already been set up for you have modeling, texturing, animation, effects, lighting, and then compositing. And that was everyone's pipeline was the exact same. Then we came in. Now we have to go in between animation and effects or parallel to it, but it's not the same pipeline. Like, so it was really hard to kind of fit in. So that was a big challenge and getting directors to realize that it takes time. There's not just a, you know, make cloth button that works And, and the tools and the computers were just not up to par. So with their, they want all this stuff done and you're like, there's no possible way I can do it, but we can try to fake it. So like when I worked on Narnia, I did a lot of the beaver shots and mm-hmm. okay. those beavers are extremely heavy. They're full of fur, but we couldn't really do a lot of fur on them because it would take too much time. So we'd have one hair here that would kind of do a patch of hair and then one hair here. So there's very patchy hair, but then you have interactions between the beaver and the wolf where he's biting his neck or he's on him. And I got most of those shots where there was interaction. And okay. you had to animate every CV of the line by hand for every single frame. And then you would have to render it to see if it was close enough to actually all the hair would fill in and if it was penetrating or not. And then you'd have to manually reanimate everything oh every gosh. time for all the interaction. And then they're constantly sliding too. So you'd always have to keep tracking where they would be. It's probably one of the most challenging things. And that set me up to be able to do like a Batman versus Superman to manually do things when there are no tools. Right. I can. Uh, yeah, I was watching your your demo reels uh, that Annalise sent me this morning. And I very clearly remember that wolf attack on that beaver and thinking like, wow, there is a lot of fur on that. And, <laughs> and, there's, oh, and it's different from the wolf to the beaver and they both have fur and they're both moving and it's got a track. That is impressive. So we didn't do all the animation. I think some other company did the wolf animation and we did the beaver animation. And so then we oh, had wow. to, to match them together and so make it look good. One of the things that no, no one really thinks about, but the beaver's neck is like this. Mm-hmm. And so you can't bend a neck like that very easily. So what would happen is the neck would do this when it bent and it would kind of go in itself and go inside. So when he crunched this way, half the neck is inside his neck, just so it looks right. Well, the hair would then go into the neck and you get a seam across the hair. So what we'd have to do then is every time it would start to bend, you'd have to animate every frame of the hair out and make sure it constantly was like this. So even easy shots where they're just sitting there kind of doing this would take days or weeks just to get it to look right. Because a 3D rendered shape, it goes inside the body. Yep. But in real life, it the skin pooches out. Right? Yep. There's no place else for it to go. Yeah. yeah. And then in real life, they're colliding with each other where we didn't have the ability to collide things easily at the time. So it would just go through itself. So you just have to animate it out. So to get it to like this, it constantly wants to do this. You have to animate the, just resting on it. Am I right that Beowulf was a project that you worked on? Yeah. Does anybody remember what year that was? It was. Uh, I can see it on early. the list real quick. Yeah. Early 2000s, right? Yeah. Uh, 2007. Was, yeah. 2007. Okay. Because when I think of that movie, I think of it really trying to have a lot of things going on, right? It had real actors. It had animation. It had 3D computer graphic animation. And it was 3D. Mm-hmm. And those are different departments for all of that different thing. So maybe talk about like how coordinate from then to now, how does that coordination work? When does it work best? 
that one was interesting because we wanted it to be 3D. So there's, you know, the 3D cheats that they did, but they didn't really know how to do it at the time. So it was all kind of experimental of how yeah. they were doing it. That wasn't on us. They just, whatever they were animating, they would do to camera. The director would try to figure out if he liked what it was or not. And then we would do it. The hard part is their CG of the 3D optics were to break it out into plates. So it's not a hundred percent you know, 3D imagery. It's broken out. So it's flat, flat, flat. And they just kind of pull it out. Where now they actually have the ability to actually make it 3D and render the images in with two cameras to make it 3D so you don't ever have to do planes to cheat it. Okay. Interesting. I kind of, um, I think the same with the the Smurfs movie, right? It's less complicated than what Beowulf was, I think. But you're still working with CGI with live actors who don't know that they're there and that coordination on that end plus coordination of placing things in the right areas to match with what the actors are doing. I can't imagine that's easy either. For us, it's pretty easy because that's going to be the match moving people and the, the people that are setting up each individual shot. So the ones that are matching it. Now, if it's off, you can tell that it's off and that becomes difficult. One of the key examples that I did was on Alice in Wonderland. There's a shot where she's getting up on the, oh, what's his name? The big bear-like creature. I think it's like the Grendy Low or something. Anyways, it's it's one of the animals that she rides. And we had another company doing the match move of matching the live action to where they're going to be. And so she was really far away from the creature in space, like really far away. Mm -hmm. But they wanted the hair to cover her legs when she got on it so that, you know, this real life girl is covered by that. So it looks like she's actually integrated into the, the character. Well, what I had to do is I had to scale the hair about a mile to get it to cover the, <laughs> the actual actor. And if you, you go to that scene where she jumps on it after she's being rescued and you look right at where her legs attach, you can actually see the hair growing to cover her. It's oh. one of those airs that I constantly look at and just go like, I can't believe I did that. But you have to, it's all the tricks. It's what you have to do to make it look good. But again, like the casual, like the casual watcher is going to go, it's Alice in Wonderland. Of course it grows over her legs. Like that just, <laughs> Maybe it, seemed, it works. It, right? Like we yeah. wouldn't know any difference. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Most people don't notice it because they're not looking at that. You're supposed to be looking at the actor. And if you yeah. can fake it enough, you don't realize it. But if you focus on that spot, just like anything, if you know it's there, you, you can't unsee yeah. it. And it sounds like you get things kind of, you know, later on in the process after a lot of shots and animation is done. When I was younger and worked a little bit in like the trades, there was this constant like the electrician would be complaining because the framer didn't drill the holes in the right place. And then the plumber would come in and complain about the electrician because they put the right wires in the wrong place. And then the tile guy would come in and complain because the plumber put the sink three inches off. So do you find yourself like that situation fixing things a lot and having to adapt? Uh, mostly having to adapt. It, it depends on the company that you're working for. Certain companies, once the animation is done, you're not allowed to touch the animation. The animation is uh-huh. golden. Mm. And so whatever they give you, you just have to work with and work around. Other ones like Disney, you're supposed to keep the animation the same, but you can change the character's look a little bit. Like you can, if the the arm folds, they want you to kind of smooth out the arm and, you know, make it look better. So you're, you're, you're cleaning up their animation as long as you don't change the animation, because that is a big no-no. For Disney also, the animators 
get to tell everyone else what to do. So if they don't like what you're doing or it doesn't feel good for their animation and doesn't let them know what they were thinking, they can tell you, okay, even though it was approved by the director, you have to go back and redo it. But other companies, you can go back and just be like, this is horrible. Redo this. I can't okay. work with this. So it, it really just depends on, you know, what company you're working for and what their standards are. So how much of when you get a project, how much of it is dictated and it's got to be exactly this way? And then how much opportunity do you have to be creative in this space? Because it is an art. Mm -hmm. So what is that creative process or outlet that you have? For me, it's really nice because... I am a technical director, so I get to choose how I go about doing things. I get to choose how I feel it should look, depending on if I'm setting it up. If I'm setting up the cloth or the hair, I get to choose how it moves as much as possible because it does go to your boss and it does go to the soups and then it does go to the director and they get the final say. But you get to have a heavy, heavy influence on, on that. And if you're Working really well with all of them, you kind of know, okay, I can get away with it looking like this and know that that's how the director is going to like it. And then you move forward and they might have notes, but you're, you're basically in the ballpark. But at the end of the day, it's not your work. And yeah. the director is the one who has to go to the financers, the producers and everyone. And if it doesn't look good, it's on him. So whatever he tells you to do, whether you think it looks beautiful or you think it's bad, you have to do. So there is an artistic art form involved, but it's also the biggest thing is just doing what the director says as artfully as possible. And I imagine on a, on a big project that we know a lot of eyes are going to see something like Batman's Cape. Do you ever take projects kind of for yourself knowing like, oh, this is a smaller thing with a smaller company. I'm going to be able to create a lot more for this or have a little more fun. I approach the project like that, but I'll take pretty much anything. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> gotta work, gotta work. Yeah. Understood. What is the difference for you when you work on something that's meant to be photorealistic, like many of the video game cutscenes, versus something more stylized like Wreck-It Ralph? Oh, that's... For the realistic stuff, there's a fun thing that happens when you do simulation where you have beautiful mistakes. And you don't intend things to work that way, but it looks really good and you can make it fit into whatever you want. So you can get away with a lot. When it comes to animation, they want very crisp lines. They want it to, you know, the C and S curves through uh, cloth motion. They want it to be very much like it was hand drawn mm -hmm. for the most part. And even though both really think about the silhouette of the character, animation is 100% about the silhouette. It has to look absolutely gorgeous. There's a lot more fine tuning and like getting things to look the way you want in animation, but they're both fun in their own right. Because when you come to animation, you actually are doing everything around the character. When it's a live action thing of putting a cape on someone, you know half of it's going to be covered by the person, so you don't have to worry about it. That part is one of the challenges, but a very interesting aspect of it. I was noticing in some of the, when you were looking at more of the realistic looking things, some of those cutscenes, and I'm sure this is why they're highlighted so much on like the demo reels that I watched is there'll be a character where you can tell, oh, that character has gel in their hair. It's a little more stiff next to this other character whose hair is dry and flowing more next to this other character who's got very, very short, like buzz cut hair all in the same scene. And I imagine that's another layer of complexity. It can be. It depends on when it comes to hair. I love short hair because we don't do anything with it. <laughs> right on. It doesn't mean like, yeah, you don't even need wind. Most of the time you're not going to see anything. You get to play around a lot with that. 
Can you tell us about any particularly memorable projects or very difficult projects that you've worked on? My favorite project to work on was not the best movie I've ever worked on, but I absolutely loved working on G-Force. Wait, is that the hamster one? That's the hamster one, yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And again, it didn't do great, but I loved working on it. The team was amazing. We got along really well. My lead, Dustin Wiki, he was amazing. He had those characters set up so well that there wasn't a lot of things that we had to do afterwards. You'd run it, you do fixes, you meet the director's notes, but you were pretty much 90% there right off the bat. So we were doing, as a team, about 75 shots per week, which is insane. We had other companies calling us, asking us how we were doing that because we were yeah. just crushing numbers. And that makes it fun because you you know if you do it, there's going to be just a few notes and you're done. And so you can have a little bit more ability to go and do more advanced things because you have the time to do it because you're not running against the clock. You're like, Hey, we have tons of time. We want you to do this. And you're like, okay, I can make it fit. Like getting one of the hamsters into a a racket. You had to like curve his hair around and do all this stuff. Well, there's two ways you could have gone about it. You could have hidden all the hair and just had him cuffed in, which if you're going fast, that's what you would have done. But I got that shot and I got to make it so that the basket wrapped around him and the hair kind of came out and you got some neat movement and, you know, sticky stuff on there where it just had a little bit of friction. And at the end of the day, you look at it and you're like, I'm really proud of that work. The movie might not have done well, but every time I see that hair, I'm like, it feels like it should be existing in there. I love it. That's cool. Okay, so looking ahead at what you do and looking at where we are kind of on the cusp of with AI and artificial intelligence art, where do you see that going as far as a tool and a help for you versus maybe shortcuts or or a detriment to this field? I do know that there are companies that I won't name, but I've talked to (laughs) that are looking at replacing all of their workers with AI to just be able to tell it, hey, go do this. You know, more power to them. I think that's great. And I think it's impossible. It's really easy to get a shot done. That that part's not hard. Although there's a lot of intricacies you have to worry about, like you have interpenetration. So a computer can probably think about how to get things out of there. But what a computer will never be able to know is how to match a director's idea and how to match a director's notes. And that is the majority of our work is not just finishing a shot, but making it look the way the director wants, which is usually against what reality is. If they want to keep doing it, I'm all for them trying it. And who knows, you know, in probably 50, 60 years, they might have something good enough to do it. But I think there's always going to be a need for an artist to go and make the actual art of it. The analogy that that's in my head is in my job, when we want something translated from English to Spanish to send out both languages to mm-hmm. families, we have folks in our office that are designated interpreters and translators. What they're doing is taking the English text, throwing it in Google Translate, copying and pasting that onto their document. Then they're reading it to make sure that it is actually the language. Right. I half imagine if that's the direction, like you said, 50, 60 years from now, they're going to throw it into a computer and then hire someone like you to fix it, you know, yeah. to make it look stylized, to make it look realistic, to fix glitches that the computer no. just... I hope that's not the case because I think the work that you all are doing just makes films better. And I would hate to see that become done by a computer to lessen the effect for the casual watcher like like me, like Rob. Well, so one of the problems that 
I think it's going to have is trying to match the look of cloth because the computer will know, okay, these settings work. And you can go, hey, I want it to look like a jean jacket. Well, a lot of times I'll be working on something and they want it to look like a jean jacket and I'll blow up the settings completely, almost to like a silk because the director wants it to be a jean jacket, but a jean jacket that does this, you know, or anything. The artist needs to know, okay, how can I play with the settings and break away from what should be and just do it? And the computer can never break away from that because it's always going to be, no, you told me jean jacket. and right. Or you're going to tell me silk jacket and I'm going to make it look like actual silk and that's still going to throw it off. So how do you get that heavy quality, that thick quality while still moving like an object that the director wants? And know how those silhouettes work and where, you know, looking at every frame right. and knowing when it looks right and when to highlight this. There are definitely in some of the frames and and some of the shots that I was seeing, cloth is a big deal. A lot of characters will have an iconic piece of their costume or uniform or dress that lets the viewer know that that is that person. And it's important that they have that white jacket that stands out the way it does against the star, starry black sky, that kind of thing. And how it moves against things or how it drapes. One of the things that I worked on for Frozen, the characters were on a slope. And the slope wasn't very big, but, you know, it was overlooking like a chasm and something was chasing them. But in the actual frame, the slope was kind of like this. And so the cloth went more towards the ground, but it looked in the shot like it was going sideways. And so just figuring out the effect actually move gravity over so that it drapes two frames straight mm-hmm. is something that I don't know if it can do. It probably can. Will it do it automatically? I don't know. Because that is something that no one really thinks about. Everyone thinks, oh, you just put it on there, you go and keep going. But you don't realize that the camera can change direction or be tilted a little bit but you can't have the cloth tilted otherwise it feels like they're falling off or things are are weird there is nothing like a good like a well-framed shot of a character going from full speed to a stop and having the hair and the fabric just swoosh and snap back to give that sense of action and like desperation i imagine that's something that you work on (laughs) a lot oh yeah yeah in fact so i worked on black adam Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. most of the scenes that i worked on were in the opening when he first comes out and there's a shot where he's right next to a van and he does this super motion and he goes up to this person that was one animation and so we had to keep the cloth on and like make it look good but not make it explode and it was one of the trickiest things i've ever done just because there's a lot of motion that you have to deaden to make it look good and but you still have to make it feel like he did just move so you can't take away all that motion but he was moving it i would say probably like six thousand miles an hour it compared to frame and the cloth just didn't understand how to handle that what cloth did you work on for Black Panther? Because there's so many textures in that movie. Yes. So for Black Panther, the first fight scene that you have where they're in the waterfall and you have all the people in the background, I did oh, yeah. uh, multiple different cloth setups for the background characters for that. And then I'm really bad with names. The guy that was one arm, bad guy, uh, Cloud, Cloud. Oh, Claw. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. uh, the Andy Circus character. Yes. Yeah. Um, so when he was running through being shot at, he just had his arm and it was just in a green thing. So we, we had to track a cap that was on there and make the cloth look like it was following. So I did all the shots for him running through that entire sequence in the air, like air hanger, air graveyard type thing. See, there's so much of this 
that we don't even know is mm-hmm. computer generated, right? That's so cool. I mean, I guess that's when you're doing it right, you shouldn't notice at all, right? Well, that was fun too, because there was no simulation. It was all hand done because I had a match and because, you know, you, you wanted to keep the upper part, which was cloth. So we're not doing anything here. We're just doing the cap here and a little bit of the, the wrinkles around his arm, but that would shift so much. You literally had to every frame figure it out and make it look good. So no one will notice it. No one will ever see it. And there's a ton of work that went into it. That's cool. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> what advice would you give to someone who's just starting out and wants to be part of this field? So I would probably just say, be tenacious. Keep going. Don't stick to one thing that you say, hey, I have to do this and I won't do anything else. If someone wants to hire you at all, take it because it's all a learning experience and then build from there. And you might love doing animation or you might like doing texturing, but there's a million people that are doing it. So if someone wants to try you for something else, maybe it'd be a better fit and maybe you can move forward. But yeah, don't keep, when you first get into it, keep your options open. Even the small companies, like don't just look at like the Sony's and the Disney's, mm-hmm. but go anywhere that'll hire you. Right on. So you mentioned kind of having that competition and, and being open to things because there are a lot of people trying to maybe break into that industry. So what is special about your style? What is that special Zach Weiler sauce? that is you is is your thumbprint on it that's a hard one because again you don't want to be seen so you don't really want to have your stuff known now uh because i did a lot of the batman capes and i'm known for the batman capes especially in scanline and around that that part of the industry i could say that that i I do good capes but Mm -hmm. i that's a hard part for me my style is more of i'm proud of how fast i am i tend to get more shots done than anyone else And it's not bragging, it's just one of those things that I see myself as more of a bulldozer instead of a a nitpicker. I just keep going until it's done. And there's times I'll bulldoze to a certain point where it's like, I'm going the wrong way, so I'll just bulldoze the other way and get it done as fast as possible. Yeah, I would say that that's a style for sure. (laughs) Again, Batman versus Superman, I would have eight to ten shots going into time. And so you'd have one running, you'd be working on another or setting up another, having another run. And you just, you're constantly trying to keep going. So I try, I kept asking him for more and more stuff. And uh, when I finished, I had in a very short amount of time, I did roughly, I think it was like 64 to 65 shots in that movie. And then when I went to Justice League, I was able to crank out like 69 shots And I was on it the shortest amount of time because for a while I was trying to set up Meg and do the shark and try to get the skin to to work. Mm. So, yeah, it's I like being fast. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure your employers also appreciate that so they can stay on their timelines, too. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a difference with that between movies and video games or is it, again, all kind of the same people doing the same process? For video games, it all depends. When I went to Blur the first time, it was mostly about, because you have a shorter time, so they're not as nitpicky about it. But you still want something to look good. But it was seriously like as fast as you can go, just get these things out, because we have more projects that are coming down the pipeline. When I was there, I think I worked on the most projects I've ever worked on, because you were on a project for maybe a month, and then another project, and then another project. Although we did, one of the video games that we worked on, that one took forever, but the characters were very realistic modern warfare the cloth was very heavy and so we also tried to switch over to a new program which took a lot of learning and a lot of failures on our part so that one took forever but other than that we have been just cranking out as much as we can so is it your fault when all these video games are delayed on release is that what you're saying? <laughs> probably 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Um, I no, know there it's an, are. It's an overactive uh, schedule, is what it is. It's it starts at the beginning. Well, then it's got to go through game testers too. That's not Zach's fault. <laughs> <laughs> um, Zach, I'm sure there are NDAs and whatnot, but are you able to tell us what's next for you? Right now, I'm in between contracts, which happens a lot, especially when it comes to if you if your contract ends anywhere close to the end of the year, there's a big, usually vacuum and void unless, you know, someone quits or something happens until like closer to April, May, and then things really start going. And then through the summer months is when usually it's super busy. I do have some things coming out, although I think it already came out. I, I did. I touched Shazam. I don't know if my shots made yeah. it in there, but I did touch it to, to have okay. it go. And I don't know. I think there's some other things that I touched. Oh, I touched uh, a little bit of The Flash. Oh, oh okay. And that's coming out. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you have to there's update a- DMD, or IMDB yourself. So I haven't put in all the newest stuff that I've worked <laughs> on. So There's a lot of capes in Shazam. There's like all kinds of different new superheroes. Well, but the funny part is for Shazam, I didn't touch any of the superheroes. I touched a necklace inside a car on a rearview mirror as they're moving, doing something. <laughs> okay, that's watch really out. That's necklace. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's the, it's the MacGuffin for the whole movie. <laughs> no, it really, it really was like nothing, but it was one of those things that they needed to get done. There's a lot of things that happen like that. Again, going back to uh, Batman versus Superman, I finished all my shots. We still had a lot of stuff to do. And so they were, they wanted to plus a lot of the shots and make them look better. Even though we didn't need to do it, they just like, Hey, we have free time. We can do it. Like I started doing fences that would move when like the space shuttle would go off or there's a big wind gust or when an airplane would land, you do all the little things around it that would move. And then I did a lot of the seaweed. When Aquaman was first introduced in Batman mm. vs Superman, it kind of like a background thing. So that part's fun. I like doing that because you never know what's going to come. It's just yeah. a call and, and to, like, here's this thing. You got to figure it out. And you have to build it yourself, make it look good, make it fit in, and you know, make everyone happy for something that wasn't even expected. So that part was awesome. It's nice to get unexpected challenges and have fun yeah. meeting them. It's, it shows the passion you have for the work for sure. Hi, nerds. It's Annalise. This is a reminder to our listeners, our call to action. Number one, have you set your 23 for 2023 yet? If not, set those goals. Find your nerd goals. We use Trello. Use whatever works for you. Number two, share with us that you set your goals. Share some if you want at Nerd Best Friends. And then number three, as the year progresses and you move those goals over to a completed card, share your progress with us. Again, at Nerd Best Friends. Or you can email us at podcast at nerdbestfriends.com. Finally, if you'd like to support our podcast, you can do so using Venmo at nerdbestfriends or go to nerdbestfriends.com in the right corner, click tip jar, tip your nerds, keep listening, stay nerdy.
That's been a pleasure. That was yeah. super interesting and fun. I, what a great conversation. Oh, I so impressed. So guys. impressed. Let's get away from work. We start with our guest. Yes, Zach, tell All us. Right, there we go. What's the nerdiest <laughs> thing you did this week? Well, the funny thing is, I talked about it in the beginning, is my tea is probably the nerdiest thing I did. Although I also love trees and fruit trees at my house. I have more. So I bought more fruit trees. Uh, <laughs> All right. <laughs> I don't know why, but now we're, we have them in pots behind our bedroom so that we can block the heat. I got a blood orange tree and I got an achacha fruit tree. I got two of those. I've heard of that, but I can't even picture in my mind what an achacha fruit is. It is considered a mangosteen, which a mangosteen would be like a um, lychee. I think it's like a langosteen or a lango fruit, Logan fruit, something. But it's kind of like that. It's got a shell on the outside. And then the inside has a juicy, like, meat. And that, there's no way, other way to call it but a meat. And then yeah. it's surrounded by, or it's surrounded in a big seed, maybe two seeds. Okay, so, yeah, all right. Like a lychee or, like, a mango is mostly seed, and then it's got yeah. a flush around kind of thing. Yeah, and then this one is, uh, so instead of being a hard shell like a lychee, it's a somewhat soft rind that's not edible itself, but you can make a tea out of it. And it's supposed to be a delicious drink by boiling that. Uh-huh. The fruit inside's gorgeous, too. So I'm really excited to have those in the yard and growing them. See, okay. it's not just a lemon tree, right? You got to find <laughs> the bespoke nerdy <laughs> tree. <laughs> Uh, how about you, Rob? What's the nerdiest thing you did this week? The nerdiest thing that I did that I've been working on is, of course, Dungeons and Dragons related because that's apparently my other 40 hour a week job that I do <laughs> is running these games. All right. So we're playing a fifth edition game and I found a second edition module that looked really cool. So I have to convert the whole thing. In addition to that, the original characters start off in the universe of the Forgotten Realms, but in the module, they get transported to the gothic horror multiverse of Ravenloft, where they fight other bad guy characters that have come into the gothic horror realm from yet a third multiverse of Dragonlance, where everything is... It's, it's, it's a match, wow. it's a mashup multiverse conversion thing that could only come from my crazy mind of wanting to mix, like, I like this and this and this. How do I smash them all up and then torture my players with it? And that's what I've been doing. <laughs> sounds like fun. Uh, sounds I'm complicated. hoping so. It's been a challenge, but like, you know, sometimes those challenges are pretty fun. For me, I've spoke a few times about Mansions of Madness uh-huh. and how great of a game it is. So when uh-huh. I got this game, it's one big box with all of those like 75, 76 minis. And it was new for me because I, I don't do Warhammers and I don't buy the the big kits like you were talking about the dungeons and lasers earlier. So I've never had to glue things together. And oh, the Mansions modeling of Madness, part I, of the hobby. Yeah. Right. I don't really mess with that. And I didn't have to for Mansions of Madness, except this one came with the bases for the for the minis and the minis this separate. Part. Yeah. I definitely don't. <laughs> do the modeling part. Um, but I did have to glue minis onto these bases and then re- realized that the way the box is designed, there's nowhere to put the minis. So I bought a giant, really useful box, a flat one to fit all the minis. And Rob, you had sent me some a video about how to magnetize it mm-hmm. so that they would stick. And you know, if I have to move the box around, they're not going to fly around and, and break. But since then, Rob found a German site. Yeah. Is it German? Felder. Uh, and they Felder, are Germany. And Felder. Yeah, probably something more German than that, but they create these foam inserts for games that don't come with an organizer. And Rob gifted me the 
bought the foam inserts for Mansions of Madness and it had been sitting for a while, just not having time to do it. So the nerdiest thing I did this week was organize Mansions of Madness in those foam inserts and I actually made a video. So we have some TikTok and YouTube content coming soon, but I am in love with this foam insert. Isn't like, it so nice and satisfying to have everything? like organized that way and protected in the soft. It's so good. (laughs) It's so good. And the only complaint I have is that it was one box too few. It's the right edition. It's the second edition of the game, but I had one more mini without a place to go. So I found a way to fit two in one. Yeah, they don't match like the little picture it came with. It's Mm -hmm. got a mini that doesn't exist and one fewer of a different mini. So it's really weird how it, you know, just, but that's a simple, it was simple fix. I just found a way to fit two in one and it's still gorgeous. Like so much so that when Sarah came home that day, I'm like, you have to see this look. And I took the box out and I opened it up and even she was like, oh, this is so cool. So I know you bought a couple for some games, right, Rob? I have my Hero Quest is all organized with that. And then Star Wars Imperial Assault is all organized like that. And I've got another one for a miniature set that I, the critical role miniature set that came out had a box and I got that one basically like it's one of my expenses now at the first of the month after payday I'm like okay what am I gonna buy <laughs> let me go down to my wish list on Felder and pick one out <laughs> yeah it's between that and like card sleeves right um, oh yeah so now I'm looking at all my games that don't come organizers like that well final girl is beautiful I, I think off podcast where I showed you that whole system so don't need yeah, one they for did that a, that but... was very intentional they put those boxes together knowing like oh this is going to be a beautiful storage solution yeah, but there's a, a lot of games you open it up and it's just little ziploc bags full of crap and it's, right. it's just a box right it was fun to organize that next episode well andrew will be back and the three of us will be talking about our impressions of the new dungeons and dragons movie what's it called something of thieves isn't it it's not the D movie no it's it has an actual name zach did dungeons... you work on this movie no i did not work on this one. Oh, okay. Uh, okay dungeons and dragons colon honor among thieves the hair and capes probably look crappy yeah uh, I would have... <laughs> you didn't work on it zach it's gonna be <laughs> they're, pro- they're probably just garbage and that's what we'll be doing next weekend. I'm We're going to talk off podcast about it, but this might be a different format because what I really want to do is capture those first impressions that we have. Like we'll go out to a nerdy movie and then immediately we'll go sit down at a bar or restaurant and just boom, 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 boom for an hour and a half about all the different things that we saw and loved or hated or didn't understand or can read into these movies. So it might yeah, be a little bit be of a, a different fun- format fun new format to the show as we head towards the end of season two with that said zach it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you i think in our personal life knowing each other i we don't really talk shop so i learned so much more about what you do besides the little like stories here and there that i've heard over the years man it's so cool i'm so impressed so thankful that you came to talk to us about it today It's been a pleasure. I I love doing this. This was a lot of fun. Very much appreciate it. Another excellent guest for this season of Nerd Best Friends. I couldn't be more happy. Remember to subscribe, share, and give us that five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitter at Nerd Best Friends, or send us a message by writing to podcast at nerdbestfriends.com. You can also find Zach Weiler's films on IMDb or in the movie theater soon. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Uh, I also have a website that I don't keep up very well at www.blindmanimagery.com. Blindmanimagery.com. All right, listeners. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next episode. Boom. And we're done.
oh, we should do this and make a bunch of nerds angry and write to us. Zach, I don't think you've met my friend Rob. Mm-mm. I might have met you at the wedding. Oh, probably. Yeah. Oh, yeah. At my wedding. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. I was married once. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What advice? You have another question? Nope. I was was going to pass. I would go for it. We do that a lot. We, yeah. (laughs) 